Let me pray together. Father God, we thank you that you're a great and good God who speaks. And thank you that we have your word to help us understand who you are and how to live. And we pray that we would be good listeners this afternoon. Amen. In 1913, Ernest Shackleton was assembling a crew to make the first ever land crossing of the Antarctic continent. This ad captures his invitation. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. It was honest. He was inundated. Men lined up at his door to join the crew. Would it be the same today? Probably not, I think. The world has changed a lot since 1913, where Shackleton appealed to men and women who wanted to be into an adventure or danger or honour. For now, the grand adventure has shrunk. It is now the pursuit of self. One well-being business says this. This is your time. Don't focus on anyone else. Other people take away your energy. We've not merely the inalienable right, but the moral responsibility to take care of ourselves first. It's about you, your perk, your goals. So subscribe and give us lots of money. <laughs> you see, we're all in the uh, river of self. If you uh, look into identity politics, the pursuit of self is right in the middle there. If you understand the gender wars, it's the pursuit of self which is kind of at the centre of that. The social justice movement, capitalism, are all about the pursuit of self. If you're a YouTuber, it is always there, the centre of YouTube. And it's there in our school classrooms too. We all swim in it and that means all our opinions and values and choices are influenced by the pursuit of self. If you think about a major choice you've made in the last six weeks, so it might be a new workplace this year, or it might be a parenting decision you've made, or a ministry choice, or, or something that's been big, I guarantee you what is best for me will be at the top of the list of how you made that decision. That is because we swim in the river of self. Now, as Christians, it can be just really easy to drift along with the crowd. We have life with Jesus and then, sorry, we, have, we do life with everyone else and we have Jesus as this kind of side plate. And we also know that if we stick our head up and try and stand out or challenge the crowd or say something that restricts someone's pursuit of self, there'll be shock, then laughter and then abuse. The problem with a life where we just pursue ourselves is that Jesus never floated with the crowd. Jesus was a disruptor. Jesus swam against the current of institutional religion, which was Judaism in his day, and he swam against the Roman power system. Jesus never pursued comfort. 
Jesus never pursued balance for his family. He didn't pursue influence. He didn't pursue status. He thoroughly rejected the pursuit of self. And he invites people on his journey, on his team, to swim against the current with him. Welcome back to Mark's Gospel. Our series is called Rediscovering Jesus. And we called it that because we want to let Jesus tell us what he is like, not bring our preconceptions to Jesus. And we're rejoining Mark's Gospel right in the middle. What's happened so far? Well, in chapters 1 to 8, we saw that Jesus spoke with astonishing authority. Whenever Jesus opened his mouth, things happened. He might heal the sick. He might teach with amazing authority. There was nothing that, there was no obstacle that he couldn't overcome. We also saw he was a rescuer of people. It might have been someone who was demon-possessed. It might have been someone who needed forgiveness. It might have been someone who died. In eight, chapter 8, verse 27, right back at the first Bible reading, we reached a climactic point. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They answered, you're one of the greats, Jesus. In those days, you're one of the prophets, and then he turned to his 12 disciples and said, who do you say I am? There was a pause. And Peter said, you're the Christ. Now that word Christ is not his last name, it's his title. It means promised saviour king. And what Peter is saying here is, you're the one we've been waiting for since King David. You're the one who's going to overthrow our enemies. You're the one who's going to establish the promised kingdom of God. Well, job done. Book shut. That's it. Mark's done. Well, it's not, is it? It keeps going. What actually happens is this. Instantly, the narrative changes. The focus, which was on the crowds and the scribes and the enemies, it narrows right down to Jesus and the twelve. And we watch Jesus turn and he focuses his two eyes on Jerusalem, 150 kilometres away, and he starts walking with his twelve friends. And for the next eight chapters, he walks and talks and walks and talks. And the road to Jerusalem is the classroom for discipleship. He is teaching his followers, then and now, who he is, what he came to do, and what being a Christian is. And so lesson one, two crosses and a wonderful preview. Let's have a look at chapter 831, 831. Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. And he spoke openly about this. Now, Jesus was a profound teacher. If you read any of Jesus' teaching in chapters 1 to 8, he would use parables and riddles and metaphors. He'd have layers. On the road to Jerusalem, he speaks plainly. No riddles. He speaks clearly and openly about his future. And to help the disciples understand him, he borrows a term from the Old Testament, we see it there, the Son of Man. 
Now, that is a title from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man was God's eternal king and universal judge. And so whenever the disciples heard Son of Man, they were going, yes, you are. Amen. Then he blows their mind. Because he said the Son of Man, God's eternal king, universal judge, is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's going to die at the hands of the Jewish power structure. The elders, the chief priests and scribes. That was the power system of the day. And they would examine him and reject Jesus like a counterfeit coin. Now, you and me, we lose the shock of that, don't we? We kind of go, we're anti them. We know they're the baddies in the gospel. But you've got to just remember, they're the guys that did their quiet times every morning. They read the Bible over and over again. And actually, they knew they were waiting for the Messiah. But they're the ones who initiate the crucifixion. The Romans, they're going to implement the crucifixion. The crowds are going to call for it and celebrate it. And you and me, we would have been there cheering too. But note Jesus' tone. He's not asking for your sympathy. He's not saying this is a terrible tragedy. Innocent bystander killed by madmen. That's not the storyline. It's not evil regime wins. No. Look at what it says. His death was necessary. It was voluntary. It was planned. It was necessary, deliberate and inevitable. In chapter 9, we read that it was the divine purpose of Scripture. What that means is in the Old Testament, God said this is what would happen to the Messiah. We see it in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, where the persecution of the righteous is a shadow. We see it previewed in the rejection of the Messiah in Zechariah 9 to 14. And we see it prophesied in the servant of God in Isaiah 53, who suffers and dies to restore God's people. You see, Jesus is walking to the cross in Jerusalem to fulfill the mission of the Christ. For Jesus to forgive sins, he must die. For Jesus to beat death, he must die. The death of Jesus is the prelude to resurrection and the powerful arrival of the kingdom of God. But to Peter, this was unthinkable. Peter was riding his push bike and someone put a screwdriver into his wheel. Peter has just gone over the front handlebars of his bike. It doesn't make sense. He's been with Jesus for two and a bit years. He has seen Jesus deal with anything that has gone wrong. No enemy, no problem Jesus couldn't overcome. And so in the next verse, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. It's one of the strangest verses in the Bible. Peter rebuked Jesus. What did he say? We don't know, do we? It might have been, hey, Jesus, that's nonsense. Don't you know who you are? You can easily solve the problem. Look how Jesus responds. 
he was revulsed. See where his eyes went? His eyes went to his disciples because he knew that Peter was just a spokesman. They all agreed with Peter. And so Jesus' rebuke is for them too. And Jesus says, get behind me. Get out of my road to, to Jerusalem. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus sees what we cannot see. There is two conflicting ideologies. And Peter is the mouthpiece of the devil. Peter is speaking the words of sinful men, not God. Peter is like the devil in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted. Peter is like the crowds at the foot of the cross who said to Jesus, come down and save yourself. The temptation for Jesus to not go to the cross is so much bigger than we can imagine. But look what Jesus says. Out of my way. My mission as the Christ is to suffer and die. As you share Jesus at work and school this year, you'll be tempted to be ashamed of the cross. The cross is pathetic. We follow a Jewish man who died an embarrassing death. And you'll be tempted to ignore that bit and focus on something else. But consider this. How did you become a Christian? You didn't become a Christian by coming to church at four. You don't become a Christian by being in a Christian family. We never become a Christian by finding God. We can't find God. We become a Christian by going to the cross and asking the one that hung there for mercy. Isn't it wonderful that Peter discovered that? Look what he says a few years later. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring you to God. At the cross, the perfect Son of God offered himself as the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for everything you have ever done wrong. The cross of Jesus is our only hope. Many years ago, I was invited to join an elite basketball coaching group. That may sound boring to you, but I was interested. It was on Saturdays. Tick, I could go to church. I would be mentored. That's what I wanted. Upskilled. That's what I wanted. There were just opportunities. I'm in. Sign me up. But then the terms and conditions box came up on the web page. And for the only time in my life, I read it. <laughs> they were very sneaky people. It would cost me $1,000 to join and I needed to be on call for 12 months. No, thank you. You see, Jesus doesn't hide things in the fine print. You don't become a Christian and suddenly go, oh, wow, I didn't realise that. No, no, Jesus is plain. You see it there in verse 34? He calls the crowd along with his disciples. He's telling everyone what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be on his team. See it there, 34? Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Do you want to be a Christian? Jesus says, come and swim against the crowd. What are the conditions? Well, firstly, deny yourself. 
That's not to deny something from yourself. That's not to say, I won't have chocolate for two months a year for Jesus. No, no. To deny the self is to deny the pursuit of self as a first priority. It is to take the crown off your head. It's to say every morning as you look in the mirror, my sexuality, my gender, my personal ambition, my family, they are not ultimately who defines me or how I live. Secondly, take up your cross. Now that is not Jesus's cross. Jesus does that cross alone. Nor is it getting through life with an illness or getting through life with hardships. Whilst real, that is not what Jesus is saying. Taking up your cross is the loss of privilege, advantage, reputation and comfort because you stand next to Jesus. For some of people in life, that has meant they've lost their life. For every Christian, it means there will be identifiable costs Monday to Sunday because you stand next to Jesus. Third condition, follow him. We don't have to go to Jerusalem, nor is it swimming with the crowd with the side plate of Jesus. Jesus says, follow him in every aspect of your life. Jesus says, I want to be your saviour and your Lord. You cannot have one without the other. And what that means is Jesus says, I want to have number one say at church and at work, in your head and online. What's number one in your diary and how you do conflict. The good thing is Jesus over the next few weeks will add more flesh to that. But look at the invitation. Jesus doesn't call holidaymakers, does he? He doesn't say, look, just drop in for four days a year. Jesus doesn't call pretenders who like to play church on a Sunday afternoon. Jesus doesn't call compromisers who live a life on a Sunday that's different to a life on a Monday. Jesus doesn't call consumers who just take and take and take from the church. Jesus doesn't call spectators who like to just look and complain and critique the church. Jesus calls people to the cross. He calls people to his cross where he gives them mercy and to the cross of discipleship where we give up our lives to swim with Jesus. If you're a Christian, you will know the weight of this. It's heavy and it is tempting to give up, to not be associated with a pathetic guy who died. There wouldn't be any more awkward moments at family gatherings. You wouldn't be called a bigot at work. Other Christians in the world would not have their homes ransacked or their businesses boycotted. And we could just join the crowd and invest in ourselves, follow our dreams, be our authentic selves, buy nice things, and there'd be no guilt. Jesus knows that. He knows exactly that that is what his disciples were thinking. And so he gives them a warning and a reward. See the warning in 38 and 39? He says, if you are ashamed of me 
I will be ashamed of you. Your policy will be my policy. What Jesus is saying here is if we keep him quiet to protect our careers or our reputation or our comfort, it will kill our faith. J.C. Ryle says, a salvation that costs nothing is worth nothing. Hear the warning. 35, he explains why it is worth it. Verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. It's the great paradox of the cross. Losers are keepers. If we look after ourselves now with the whole crowd of orange, we will get something. Career, comfort, wealth, happiness, whatever. But that's all you get. You get it for now and that's it. But the one who follows Jesus, who trusts him, will be seen as a loser at school. Will be seen as a loser at work. But they're deeply rich. Why? You see it there? Because they have Jesus. And once you have Jesus, you have everything. You have life, salvation, security, peace. You have the assurance of life after death. Were the disciples convinced? No, they weren't. Jesus knew that, actually. Because at this point in Mark 9, the jigsaw was not coming together. We all know what a jigsaw is like. At the very beginning, it's really painful. It's like, where do these things fit together? Well, the disciples, they had this powerful guy that could do anything who was now talking about suffering. And it just wasn't fitting together. So in chapter 9, verse 1, he gives them another promise. See it there? Then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, the kingdom of God at this point was like a seed in the ground. You couldn't see anything. All the disciples had was the word of God. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you a preview. I'm going to give you a trailer, a movie trailer. I'm going to give you a a little glimpse of what the future really is. And this verse was fulfilled multiple times over the next few months. The disciples, they witnessed Jesus dying on the cross where he defeated sin. They saw him rise from the dead where he defeated death. They witnessed the ascension where he went to glory to sit at God's right hand. They witnessed Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came out on all Christians. And they watched church growth. As Christian became Christian, as, as Christians and the church just grew. You see, the kingdom of God was coming in power. But for three of them, they got a preview six days later. They'd heard Jesus say We're gonna die. he's going to die. Six days later, Jesus took them up a mountain to give them a preview. He took them up there to pray. We think it's Mount Meron, for those who like to know a bit of geography. And he took them up there to spend time with them. But while they're on the mountain without warning, Jesus was transfigured. What that word means is his form was transformed. So what actually happened? Well, the veil came off and the disciples saw the glory 
of God, the almighty king. That glory which they saw, which was the gospel writers describe it like the sun, was inherent to Jesus. It was inside Jesus all of his life from the first Christmas to this day. But for a moment, they got to see it. Moses, when he came down the mountain, had reflected glory. Jesus had personal glory. This is who the Son of God is. They saw Moses and Elijah pointing to Jesus. He's the hope of Israel. Peter, he just loves this moment, but it's Peter, right? So he sticks his foot in his mouth, right, and says, let's have a tent party. All he wants is to stay there, right? But he doesn't understand. He's terrified. But then the cloud comes down. The cloud in the Bible is God's presence. And the cloud had not come for 600 years. But suddenly the presence of God is enveloping all six people. And God speaks. The father says, this is my son. Listen to him. It's a very gentle rebuke to Peter. Listen to Jesus. It's a very gentle rebuke to you and me. If we're going to follow Jesus this week, we need to be good listeners. What an incredible preview of the kingdom of God. The disciples, they wander down the mountain, they're chatting away, they've got awe, they've got confusion, and then Jesus says, shh, no more talking, and they obey. Strange. They don't talk about it again because understanding for them will come later, not yet. Because the jigsaw is not making sense. They've got Jesus, man of great authority, Jesus, I'm going to suffer and die. Now Jesus, who has glory as bright as the sun, and they're trying to put the pieces together and they're not getting very far. And so they ask Jesus a question, don't they? They say, Jesus... What about Elijah? Now, you and me might go, that's weird. Why are you talking about Elijah? But they know their Bibles. They know Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says that the king, that Elijah must come before the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, he keeps talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And so they go, how does it fit? We know Elijah's coming. We know you're talking about the kingdom of God, but you're talking about suffering. Help us, help us. So what Jesus does, he picks up some pieces of the jigsaw and he puts them in place. It's beautiful. And this is what he says. He says, Elijah has already come. John the Baptist has come and got everything ready. John the Baptist has made them expectant, repentant, and he's restored the faith of God's people. And then Jesus says, here's the part of the God's plan that you've missed. What did they do to Elijah? They ran him out of town, they persecuted him, rejected him, and he suffered. What did they do to John the Baptist? They ran him out of town, rejected him, called him a fool and chopped off his head. Those two tell us the pattern of the Messiah. That is the pathway of the Christ. The kingdom of God that God promised is going to arrive through suffering. That's the end of the first lesson on the road to Jerusalem. What's Jesus doing? He's walking directly to the cross. 
His future is rejection and nobody will get in his way. But what Jesus is doing is assembling a team to go on an adventure and that team will trust him and they will swim against the tide of self with him. Church at four, are you swimming with Jesus? You'll know you are because you've been to the cross and you've asked the Saviour for forgiveness. And you will know because tomorrow morning, just because you stand next to Jesus in his team, there'll be a cost. Someone will laugh at you. Someone might mock you. Someone might ignore you. But that's what it means to be on Jesus' team. We swim against the pursuit of self with our Saviour. Is it worth it? Absolutely. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you have walked that path to the cross. You went there alone. And you hung there in our place. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you for the preview of who you really are. The mighty king who hung on a cross for us. Oh, we love you and worship you. And we thank you for inviting us onto your team. May we swim well with you this week. Amen.